Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 104. For last week and for this week, we're proud to present a two-episode special where we've pulled together some of our favorite stories and segments from 2018 for you. They're presented in chronological order. Part one came out last week, the last week of 2018, and part two is publishing this week, the first week of 2019. During the show, we're not going to spend a lot of time setting up each piece, but we will tell you the date, the episode, and the segment title every time, just to keep it all in context. This is all made possible by our sponsors, the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the Star Foundation. Welcome to part two of our favorite segments of 2018. June 29, episode number 78, How World War I Shaped the 20th Century, with Dr. J. Winter. This week in our Historian's Corner, we're joined by Dr. J. Winter from Yale University and the Charles J. Style Professor of History Emeritus. Dr. Winter has a great insight into the cultural impact of our 20th century wars, and he's the author of such books as The Great War and the Shaping of the 20th Century, and Sites of Memory, Sites of Mourning, The Great War in European Cultural History. Dr. Winter is also the co-writer and chief historian for the 1996 PBS series The Great War and the Shaping of the 20th Century, which was awarded two Emmys, as well as the Alfred DuPont Journalism Award, the George Foster Peabody Award, and more. Jay, it's an honor to have you on the show. It's good to be with you. Jay, you've been focusing on World War I since before the centennial. How did you come to focus on this time period? I began studying the First World War in 1965 when I was an undergraduate at Columbia University. The First World War struck me as Europe's Vietnam. So it was the contemporary echoes of the war in Vietnam that affected my choice of subject and indeed is part of the explanation for the vast expansion of First World War studies from the 1970s on. Well, now we've talked with a number of historians and others about the many changes that this period brought around. In fact, we've been referring to it as the war that changed the world. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. The technology of information and images was revolutionized. One of the leading revolutionaries was the Kodak company who put in the hands of ordinary soldiers the Kodak vest pocket camera that made it impossible for armies to enforce their regulations that soldiers shouldn't have images of war. They should simply fight and let the propaganda agents take care of that. In some ways, what the First World War did was to open up ordinary soldiers' vision of what war is, including American soldiers, of course, and prepare the ground for the fact that you can't control images. It's the prehistory of Abu Ghraib in Iraq. Fascinating. And Jay, in some of your writings, you're specifically talking about World War I and how it changed the way we mourn our dead. Could you elaborate on that? The First World War produced 10 million dead men, either killed in combat or died in disease. And of those, 5 million have no known graves. It's as true for the American army as it is true for others. War has always been a killing machine, but what 1914-18 did because of artillery was to turn it into a vanishing act. The issue of missing soldiers, soldiers who died but no one has a trace of them, becomes universal in the First World War. It is the birth of the War of the Disappeared. And it's also the moment when a number of different countries all attempted to represent this revolution through creating tombs for unknown warriors. In other words, not people who disappear, but a body that doesn't have a name. And it's those that we honor as an Arlington Cemetery. Well, you're certainly right about that. In the thousands of locales uh, where World War I memorials are around the country, the names of the lost sort of form the central theme for the communities and, and for the memorials. Is that also true in Europe? Very much so. The names are all that really matter. This is a phrase that the British poet, Rudyard Kipling, who lost his son, too, who literally vanished during the Battle of Lucid, his body has never been found. He put that in all of the Commonwealth, initially imperial, but now Commonwealth war graves, cemeteries, their names shall live it forevermore because there's nothing left. 
Artillery killed 80% of the men who died in the First World War. It was mechanized assembly line, machine run killing. Four years of war, the biblical message that we all returned to dust was relived with a savage irony attached to it. The notion of honoring the dead meant honoring an individual who once walked by your side and who now simply vanished from the face of the earth. In addition to all you've done, you've also were asked to consult on the design for the Historial de la Grande Guerre, a major World War I memorial with multiple locations in France, a really unique design. What were some of the thoughts and considerations during that museum's design process? Well, it was quite something in 1985 to be asked to design a museum. You know, we historians are used to thinking in two dimensions, to actually think in three dimensions about what a museum of the First World War should look like. And what I ultimately came up with was the idea that 20th century warfare needs to have a horizontal axis in order to do justice to the subject. And the reason is soldiers dug trenches to stay alive. But the second reason is this. The language of glory, the language of heroism, 19th century language about war is vertical. 20th century war and the language we use to represent it is much more horizontal. Think of Maya Lin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial. That particular design is entirely horizontal, and you can see the advantage. Horizontality is the language of mourning. Verticality is the language of hope and celebration. In Europe, absolutely, you do not celebrate the First World War. You commemorate it. A horizontal design can express commemorating the war much better than a vertical design. Well, as you know, the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission is building a World War I memorial in Washington, D.C., and, uh, you know, it's something that's currently missing in the Capitol. I know you've been following the project because you've commented on it. What do you think of the plans for the National World War I Memorial? I think they're very interesting, and indeed, there are a number of reasons why I think it's absolutely consistent with the change in representation that has taken place in museums all over the world. First is, it's a wall, and what American soldiers did was fill the holes on the Allied side and also pay for them. To have a wall, that's what to do to represent the First World War. Secondly, a wall showing men fighting for each other. And I think the third advantage of having a wall that shows men in combat is to make it clear that the First World War was the first of 20th century wars that didn't do what they were supposed to do. It was the war that made the next one almost certain. I hope funding becomes fully available. The design in question, I fully support. Dr. Jay Winter is the Charles J. Style Professor of History Emeritus at Yale University and the author of numerous books on the cultural impact of World War I on the 20th century. July 20, episode number 81, a two-for-one combo with World War I war tech and speaking World War I, both about photography. This week in World War I war tech, the subject is photography and imaging in World War I. Photography and the war had major influences on each other. In 1914, as the Germans streamed through Belgium towards France, pilots had seen the columns of invaders from the air. Now, they made estimations on the number of invaders, but the commanders just didn't believe that you could make such an accurate assessment from up in the sky. But soon after, the planes were outfitted with cameras, and aerial reconnaissance grew into a major part of combat and strategy. The combination of these two relatively new technologies, the airplane and the camera, provided field commanders with a comprehensive map of the enemy positions and movements as field darkroom technicians started to stitch together dozens of images into comprehensive area maps. Now, there was a pattern here. Reconnaissance overflights preceded artillery bombardments, and artillery bombardments preceded ground offensives, a pattern that the soldiers began to recognize. And if you think about it, even though fighter plane aces were the noted, notorious, wonderful knights of the sky as they engaged in dogfights, much of the time, their actual job was protecting the recon planes. And in fact, those pilots and the specialized units that made sense of their photos probably had a greater impact on the war. On the ground, official war photographs and films were being made by all sides. The U.S. Signal Corps motion and still picture cameramen were assigned to every division and outfit of the American military, as well as the Red Cross and the Salvation Army. These cameramen produced nearly 600,000 feet of film abroad. And in the United States, the Signal Corps shot another 277,000 feet of film. 
The U.S. Signal Corps documented an American war in an unprecedented fashion, preserving countless motion and still images for posterity. A huge boon to the centennial, as the Library of Congress has added troves of great digitized images and films to the publicly available resource. But the Signal Corps cameramen weren't the only ones on the ground with cameras. World War I started just after the introduction of a world-changing new camera, the Vest Pocket Kodak, the VPK. By 1914, war photography had actually been around for over a half a century. However, due to the tech limitations of the camera gear, pictures of war were mostly staged. According to military historian Joe Coxey, 19th century war photographers were hampered by wet plate technology with unwieldy cameras that needed long exposure times. Now, not exactly ideal for capturing the chaos of war. But the 1912 Kodak Vest Pocket Camera was small enough to carry and anyone could take a picture. It quickly exploded in popularity and reached the front in 1914 with the first wave of British soldiers. Commanders were far from thrilled about this. They wanted to control the world vision of the war. After friendly images of Brits and Germans surfaced following the Christmas truce of 1914, the British government banned portable cameras. But of course, it didn't work. In contrast, the German authorities were fairly tolerant about personal photography in their ranks. In the U.S., the Kodak company marketed the VPK specifically to soldiers who brought them to France in droves. According to a Kodak advertising poster, the camera helped the soldier create, quote, history from their viewpoint. Now, this isn't just effective marketing, but a poignant statement regarding the significance of personal photography in wartime. So, thanks to this new piece of photographic technology, soldiers, nurses, and civilians alike produced a massive collection of personal images and have managed to share their experience with us about the war that changed the world. Now for our weekly feature, Speaking World War I. This week, we're going to stay with our photo kick with a reprise of a word we featured in episode number 46. Now, Americans have been known for their shooting skills since the colonial pioneer days, and in World War I, they continued to display their sharpshooting skills in the trenches. But shooting from a trench in a war was really different from shooting back home. Lifting your head up while you carefully aim in on a target could get you killed. So, when you went to fire, speed was key. Snapping up over the parapet, aim, fire, and drop became the standard procedure a procedure that came to be known as the snapshot. The word snapshot had been used to describe a quick shot from a firearm during the 1800s, but came into much more frequent use during World War I. Around the same time, the word was then borrowed for another activity. As we mentioned in this week's World War I war tech, this is the era of a new small portable camera. Pop up the camera, aim, and fire. You've just taken... A snapshot. A game even emerged called snap shooting, a sort of photographic version of tag, where you tried to escape while someone raced around trying to catch you on film. It was a kind of photographic version of hunting. Snapshot. See the podcast notes to learn more. August 10, episode number 84. Japan in World War I with Dr. Frederick Dickinson. Now, those who've never been exposed to what happened in the Far East during World War I are often surprised by the fact that Japan declared war almost as soon as hostilities broke out in 1914, years before America entered the fray. And many of those same people are also surprised to learn that Japan fought on the side of the Allies. And those who know just a little about Japan in World War I tend to hold some precepts about Japan and Japan in World War I, including the accepted Western concept that Japan was an isolated nation and stalked away from the Versailles Treaty, having been seriously insulted by the non-acceptance of their proposal for racial equality for the League of Nations. Now, I'm one of those people. So it was really great to have some of my precepts realigned by our next guest, Dr. Frederick Dickinson. Professor of Japanese History at the University of Pennsylvania, 
co-director of the Lauder Institute of Management and International Studies, and the deputy director for the Penn Forum on Japan. <laughs> Dr. Dickinson didn't just study Japan. He was born in Tokyo and raised in Kanazawa and Kyoto. He's written a series of books, including War and National Reinvention, Japan and the Great War, 1914 to 1919. Dr. Dickinson, thank you for joining us. Sure. Thanks, Teo. Thanks for having me. Delighted to talk about Japan. Delighted to have an audience for Japan. Okay, let's start with the isolation issue. I would say, number one, that Japan was never isolated, but, you know, we have this impression because Japan was very adept at essentially controlling its own foreign policy up through the early modern period. Had a little bit of issue in the mid-19th century, obviously, when Commodore Perry came along and it turned out that the Americans were going to sort of decide the terms of trade and negotiation. But the Japanese are first defeating the Chinese in war in 1895. They're also a very important part of the international coalition to suppress the Boxer Rebellion in China in 1900. Latter 19th century, it's the age of empire, right? So there are a few things you have to do in order to be taken seriously on the international stage. You have to create a modern state and you have to create a modern empire. And in order to do both of those things, you have to create a modern navy and a modern army. Essentially, Japan is doing that. And the Japanese already by 1885 are looking to Korea as the principal target of their potential empire building enterprise. And that very much begins with the Sino-Japanese War and just continues. So Japan is very much on the radar screen. And this is the main reason for the Anglo-Japanese alliance of 1902. The British recognize, number one, that Russia is a problem, and they recognize, number two, that the Japanese are the ones to help deal with the Russians. World War I breaks out, and within months, Japan invades the Tsingtao region of China, presumably because it was held by Germans at the time. Is that true? Definitely, but even more important than the within months idea is that the Japanese are declaring war on Germany August 23rd of 1914. This is quite remarkable. I mean, obviously, it's after the British, after the French but it's before the Americans, it's before the Italians, it's before the Ottoman Empire gets involved in this war. They're very much out there out at the very beginning of the war. And yes, you have to ask yourself, well, what's going on? Essentially, it's the Anglo-Japanese alliance. And in particular, it has to do with the one man who was basically in charge in August of 1914. And he was the one who made almost single-handedly the decision to go to war against Germany. That was Kato Takaki. He was the foreign minister at the time. So what role did Japan play during the war? Well, it's an interesting question, an important one, and one that you would probably be surprised to learn. But I would say, to put it in a nutshell, the Japanese belligerence against the central powers was a deciding factor in the victory of the Allied powers. The Germans essentially are knocked out of the war in Asia by November of 1914. And I would simply say that had the Japanese decided, instead of declaring war on Germany, to declare war on Britain and its allies, we would be living in a very different world right now. And that was not necessarily out of the realm of possibility. No, it's a fascinating role. They also played a fairly large part in keeping the U-boat threat down in the Mediterranean. Exactly. So all kinds of supporting roles that the Japanese are playing uh, throughout the war, in fact. So now the war wraps up and Japan is at the table at Versailles. How did that go? And what role did classic American racism play in the outcome? So we usually simply hear the issue of the racial non-discrimination clause that the Japanese put up for inclusion in the covenant of the League of Nations. But you have to remember, I mean, that was a very minor issue for the Japanese. They essentially got everything they wanted except that clause and then some. And what they actually wanted was confirmation of their newfound power in China, number one. And they also got confirmation of their newfound empire. And that is they're given German Micronesia as League of Nations mandate territories to essentially develop as part of their sort of informal empire after 1919. So those are the two things that the Japanese were really interested in. And they got them without a problem. Plus, they got recognition of being a world power. They were one of the five victor powers that were present at the table to discuss not simply issues in Asia, but to discuss issues of world peace. Okay, so moving forward again, Japan was allied with the Anglo-Franco alliance during World War I. 
what happened between World War I and World War II that caused Japan to align themselves against the Allies 25 years later? This changes from the Manchurian incident onward, Manchurian incident in September of 1931. You know, after becoming a pivotal player at the Paris Peace Conference, a pivotal player at the Washington Conference, at the Geneva Conference, and naval arms reductions at the London Conference in 1930, very important signatory to the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928. You know, after that, clearly something different is going on. And essentially, I would say it's a problem of domestic politics in Japan. Political parties are sort of a new phenomenon in Japan. Until the First World War, essentially, the oligarchs had been in charge, the bureaucratic decision makers had been in charge. So the 1920s is a new era of political party management. And there are some within Japan that do not benefit politically by this arrangement. And they try as hard as they can throughout the 1920s to put Japan on a different path. They finally find a solution, a formula, and that is to just start shooting at home and abroad. And so these folks are doing that in early 1930s, and this obviously ultimately changes Japan's trajectory, puts it on a path toward alliance with Germany and Italy rather than with Britain and the United States. Dr. Dickinson, thank you so much for providing our listeners with this great overview of a story that many people I've spoken with are actually surprised at, and really a story that's pretty much untold. Thank you for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Theo. Dr. Frederick Dickinson is professor of Japanese history at the University of Pennsylvania. In the same episode, number 84, the 28th Division, Pennsylvania National Guard Doughboys Fight from Dr. Edward Langle. The curtain opened in August 1918 on one of World War I's hardest-fought battles. The 28th Division, Pennsylvania National Guard, had been in the thick of the fighting for three weeks now, following up the defeat of the final German offensive along the Marne on July 15th by participating in the so-called Ain Marne campaign. The campaign cleared a German-held salient and pushed the enemy back to the Vell River. Now, however, the Pennsylvania Doughboys had to cross the river at the shell-shattered village of Feem. Nineteen-year-old Corporal Harold Pierce approached Feem with his comrades of the 112th Regiment on the evening of August 7th. A white cloud of gas and smoke hovers over the town, but otherwise it looks peaceful enough, he thought. The closer he got, though, the worse it appeared. Supposedly, the just-departing Red Arrow 32nd Division from Michigan and Wisconsin had captured the town. As the Doughboys passed an old mill and railroad, though, they saw a red glow from fires burning in the town. Then, enemy artillery shells began falling as the Doughboys ran past a wrecked Dodge staff car, smaller fires crackling with exploding cartridges, corpses, and streets littered with fallen buildings, shell holes, poles, wires, and other debris. German snipers were everywhere. American detachments worked through the town to clear out the enemy snipers, who had penetrated Feme from the smaller village of Femet across the river to the north. Meanwhile, other doughboys with automatic rifles used a half-wrecked footbridge to enter Femet. German infantry managed to hold the Americans back, until a group from the 112th Regiment's 3rd Battalion raced across a bridge of fallen logs and established a weak bridgehead below a railroad embankment near Chateau Diable, soon better known by its English name of the Devil's House. American artillery opened fire on the north bank of the river at dawn on August 8th, and an hour later the Americans hot-footed it across the footbridge from Feme to Femet. Converging enemy machine gun and artillery fire quickly drove them back, that afternoon, the 112th Regiment attacked again, this time following a rolling barrage that ripped through Femet. Fighting desperately in the streets, often hand-to-hand, -hand, the Americans gained footholds in the southern and eastern parts of the village and took 40 prisoners. It wasn't much, but it was a start. August 9th dawned with the Americans in Femet just trying to hold on. Savage German artillery fire, including gas, descended on the village all day, making relief difficult. Harold Pierce and his brother Hugh had to dash across the footbridge into Femet at their captain's direct orders. Harold Pierce recalled, He commands to go, and we start as fast as our legs can go, over the bridge past a big dud aerial bomb. 
I see my brother Hugh fall, and I think he's shot, but he has only jumped into a hole in the bridge, and we all follow him in to get our wind. Two dead men are lying half in the water. We climb out again and run to the end of the bridge and turn quickly to the left into the houses. Near the first house, an American is lying so covered with rock dust, he looks like a marble man. In a house, Pierce found some doughboys sniping at Germans and cutting notches in their barrels to count the kills. The men were out of cigarettes and so desperate that they had been smoking leaves. Fortunately, Pierce didn't smoke, so, as he recalled, I hand out packs of camels in Chesterfields and know how the Good Samaritan felt. I am a hero, a saint, a philanthropist in their eyes. They inhale and relax. Beyond, he found houses filled with wounded and killed. Pierce and his brother next joined some doughboys behind a stone wall. The Americans fired uphill into an orchard where they heard but did not see a gun firing, ignoring orders to conserve their ammunition. And he recalled, Hugh claims it is an American gun and does not get down, although it's firing steadily now, and the crack of its bullets are plain now over our heads. I yell at him to get down, but he laughs and fires another shot. I jump and grab him around the neck and shoulders and throw him to the ground heavily and light on top of him. Just then a leaf comes tumbling out of the peach branches cut by a bullet not a foot over his head. He is willing to admit I'm right. Later, the men open fire together as if the whole German army are marching down the streets. Quickly, I shift my Springfield to the right to get in a shot. As I shoot, a man from F Company next to me drops to the ground as if dead. I had the muzzle about six inches from his ear. He's out for a few seconds, then rolls onto his back, stares to the sky, and asks me where he's hit. A sergeant next to him, whose eardrums were almost broken, curses at me, but the one who was knocked out says, Never mind, buddy. I settle back of the wall, ashamed, but then my intentions were good. German soldiers of the proud and battle-hardened 4th Guards Division counterattacked, but the doughboys behind the stone wall beat them back. Undeterred, the Germans filtered snipers and machine gunners into town overnight. They were determined not just to hold Fimet, but to wipe out the impudent Americans. October 5th, episode number 92, The Historian's Corner, The Lost Battalion with Rob Laplander. There are really two fabled stories in American World War I lore. Interestingly, they both surround the first few weeks of October. One is the story of Sergeant Alvin York, the other the story of the Lost Battalion. Both became larger than life, spun up by popular media and the desire to turn the war into adventure and saga. But the real story, the actual events, are probably more dramatic, more human, more emotional, and certainly more painful than the fictionalized ones. What they share in common is the humility, valor, willing sacrifice, and character of some remarkable Americans. Ordinary men in extraordinary circumstance. We're joined by Rob Laplander, citizen historian and author of Finding the Lost Battalion, Beyond the Rumors, Myths, and Legends of America's Famous World War I Epic. Rob, welcome back to the podcast. How are you there, sir? Good. Hey, Rob, you're coming in all the way from France. Yes, sir. We are just outside of Bienerville, France, where the Lost Battalion was trapped for five days on a hillside in the Charlevoix Ravine. We are just about three kilometers away. I'd like to be doing this from in the pocket, but there's no cell coverage there. Sorry. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised. It's a bit remote. Rob, to start with, who is the Lost Battalion and how did they wind up getting lost? The Lost Battalion is actually a group of about 700 men who were trapped a kilometer and a half ahead of enemy lines for five days between October 2nd and October 7th, 1918. If this were the 20s or 30s, you'd know all about it. It was a very popular story at the time. About 700 men went into the ravine, and at the end of the five-day siege, 194 walked out. They took 72% casualties, and it was one of the most overreported stories of the war. The most significant thing about it, I think, is that Lost Battalion is a misnomer. 
they weren't lost in the sense that nobody knew where they were. Everybody knew where they were. Even the guys would tell you, hell, everybody knew where we were. Even the Germans knew where we were. Lost meant that they were in a situation that it didn't look like they were going to get out of. So, Rob, your book, The Lost Battalion, is actually titled Finding the Lost Battalion Beyond the Rumors, Myths, Legends of America's Famous World War I Epic. And that begs the question, what are the myths and misconceptions about the epic? There's always been this misconception that the leader of the Lost Battalion, Charles Whittlesey, had them in the wrong spot, or that he charged ahead in some moment of glory and put them in a situation that was untenable. You know, one of those stories is true. Whittlesey was exactly where he said he was, and he was given specific and direct orders, and he followed them and he, when nobody else did. Another myth is that he sent out the wrong coordinates from where he was, which led to an American artillery barrage directly down on their position. And that's not true at all. There were several different factors that were involved in how that happened, but it had absolutely nothing to do with Charles Whittlesey. But there was a barrage that came down on them? Yes. On October 4th, for a period of time, there was an American barrage that landed directly on the position. They had to endure it for almost two and a half hours. How did they wind up getting found? Whittlesey and his men sat on that hillside for five days. And in the meantime, the rest of the regiment and their sister regiment, the 307th, fought very hard to get them out, to get over the hill and into that ravine so that they could link up with their flanks. And it helped pry the line loose so that the Germans had no choice but to actually pull out. It was about 7.30 p.m. on October 7th that the Germans evacuated the area and Company B of the 307th managed to come in on the right flank and hook up with Whittlesey. By that time, however, the damage had been done. Only 194 were able to walk out under their own power. Now, they tried to resupply Whittlesey by air, and we had a story about that last week. What was that about? The 50th Air Squadron tried very hard to come in into the ravine and drop packages. The problem was Whittlesey's men were dug in so deep. If they could be seen from the air, then they could be seen from the hills around them. And if they were seen from the hills around them, they'd be killed. When they finally came out, there were already cameras and reporters all set up, and it got turned into kind of a media story, didn't it? Well, even before they were out of the pocket, as early as October 5th, the first newspaper articles were appearing in newspapers at home about them. They were already heroes, even before they were out of the pocket. And when they walked out of the position on October 8th, there was cameras there and reporters, and there's actually film footage that was taken of them coming out. Well, Rob, you're there now. What's it like walking the space on the centennial of the event? We were here 10 years ago for the 90th, and it was a very moving experience then. Now being here on the hillside each day that they were there, 100 years to the minute that they were there, this is a story that I've lived with for the better part of 21 or 22 years. My kids know the story. My wife knows the story. You can't swing a dead cat in my house without hitting something lost battalion. And here we are at the 100th anniversary on this hillside. It's an extremely moving thing to be part of the centennial of World War I to begin with. And now to be allowed to be part of this, to have this honor of standing on this hillside in the foxholes that they were in a hundred years ago, and to know what happened here, it defies description in a way. And it's very, very moving. Rob Laplander is an author, citizen historian, and importantly, the force behind the Doughboy MIA project, which tracks all of the still missing U.S. service personnel from the war. Episode number 94, Maneuverings, Both Military and Diplomatic, with Mike Schuster. There is an incredible mix and tension of aggressive fighting and anticipation of an armistice. Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog, picks up that story as October flows into November. Thank you, Teo. The headline reads, 
Take the border German territory, a new Allied offensive. The thing left unsaid, surrender, special to the Great War Project. Events are moving quickly now as Germany continues to pull back its forces on the Western Front. Historian Martin Gilbert reports that on October 12th, the German government accepted President Woodrow Wilson's conditions for negotiations, the complete withdrawal of their troops from France and Belgium. Excitement about the coming peace is premature, reports Gilbert. Before Wilson received the German acceptance of his terms, the British and French opened a new offensive inside Belgium. In five days, the new offensive had advanced 18 miles, taking 12,000 prisoners and 550 guns. Gilbert reports German troops continued to fight for the French cities under their control, unwilling to withdraw without a struggle from regions they had ruled for more than four years. On October 13th, French forces drive them out of the city of Laon, liberating 6,500 French civilians. According to Gilbert, the liberation of Laon was a turning point, a city that had so often been within sound of the guns during earlier battles, but had faced the humiliation of occupation for more than 1,500 days. Not all the Allied leaders favor an armistice. The British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, raises serious questions about it. He tells his senior military and political advisors of his fears that if the Germans gained a break, they might obtain time to reorganize and recover. According to notes of a meeting with his advisors, Lloyd George then raised for consideration whether the actual military defeat of Germany, giving to the German people the real taste of war, was not more important from the point of view of the peace of the world than a surrender at the present time, when the German armies were still on foreign territory. Another British diplomat worried from a perch in Switzerland that Germany would make peace too soon. It will be a thousand pities, he writes in mid-October a century ago. If we are called off before we hammer the Germans completely on the Western Front, we ought to get them into their beastly country, for that is the only way of bringing home to the Kaiser or to his population what war means. On that day, October 14th, among the Germans wounded at the Ypres salient is a Corporal Adolf Hitler temporarily blinded by a gas shell. Hitler is evacuated from the front. The state of German forces is pitiful. One of the German leaders writes in a letter, the wretched condition of troops short of artillery support, short of ammunition, fuel, horses, and officers. He concludes we must obtain peace before the enemy breaks into Germany. By late October, a century ago, President Wilson is making it clear in fairly blunt terms by his standards, according to historian Gary Mead, that what was wanted from the Germans now was not offers of peace negotiations, but surrender. Nothing, Wilson writes, can be gained by leaving this essential thing unsaid. And that's the news from the Great War Project a century ago during these days in the Great War. Mike Schuster is the curator for the Great War Project blog. November 11, episode number 98. From the World War I Armistice Centennial Day Sacred Service, an excerpt. The Last One Down, Henry Gunther, written by Matthew Naylor, underscored with the unanswered question by Aaron Copeland, performed by the World War I Centennial Orchestra, and read by Dr. Libby O'Connell. The squad approached a German roadblock with two machine guns. The soldier got up with his bayonet in hand and against the orders of his sergeant, charged. The German troops tried to wave him off. He kept going, firing a shot or two.
When he got too close to the machine guns, he was shot in a burst of automatic fire and killed instantly. a.m., the last soldier was killed, an American, just one minute before the armistice took effect. Just one minute. Knowing the armistice would come into force at 11 a.m., the German soldiers had tried to stop him, to wave him off, to stop the bloodshed. This last man who died shot by a German machine gunner This last man, Henry Gunther, a German-American, born to German parents in Maryland, had he waited just one more minute, they might have welcomed him as a brother. Mein Bruder, mein Bruder! As many as 35 million dead, millions more wounded, families torn apart, with another 50 or 100 million dead from the flu of 1919, the founding catastrophe of the modern age ushering the greatest period of change in human history, a world forever changed. And we're closing with December 14, episode number 101, Three Key Impacts of World War I with historian Sir Hugh Strawn. Sir Hugh is one of the most respected World War I historians anywhere. He's the Professor of International Relations at the University of St. Andrews and Emeritus Fellow of All Souls College, University of Oxford. Sir Hugh, it's wonderful to have you back on the podcast. Thank you for taking the time. It's a great pleasure, Teo. I'm delighted to be back on. We've been calling it the war that changed the world. Now, in your opinion, as one of the great subject matter experts on World War I, what would you pick as the top three changes that were brought about by the conflict? I suppose the first and most obvious thing, if you look at it from the perspective of 1918-1919, is that four of the major empires in the world have collapsed. But the result across Central and Eastern Europe and into Asia and into Central Asia and down to the Middle East is massive. Here is essentially a situation where there is a vacuum in terms of governance, in terms of which the successor states will be. All that is going on and possession is nine-tenths of the law. So while the peacemakers are meeting in Paris, these competing entities are fighting each other and force of arms is deciding a great deal. So that's perhaps a long answer, but I think that's one of the most dramatic changes. The second would be the entry of the United States into the world order, its role in shaping the international order, its positioning of itself as a global power. So that will be my second point. And I think the third is that what emerges out of both those things is that our understanding of how states should be put together itself changes. So there's a consideration of power politics. And in some ways, Wilson pays no attention to those principles of power politics. He simply says, or he gives vent to the idea of national self-determination. And that remains, even today, something we respect as a principle 
but of course it has been a tremendous source of conflict in the 20th century world, not just in the short term in the run-up to the Second World War, but also still today. That's fascinating. So your biggest take on all of this is that the transformation from this was political. Yes, I think I would. I mean, if the implication of your question is, is it economic, is it social? Well, of course, it's those things as well. Sure. Technological, social. There is a lot. And I think I would put political, economic and social ahead of technological, because although the technologies of war are put on a new footing by the First World War, you can see the antecedents of much of that with industrialization between 1850 and 1914. And perhaps the most basic would be the notion that there are societies with mass popular press, with a very high level of literacy, with a degree of economic security, and with a genuine sense of progress defined in all sorts of ways, which makes for the war being a sort of surprise in that you'd expect Europe to have more sense than to go to war, and also makes this war so radically different so quickly it becomes a major war involving whole societies from 1914 itself. And the collapse of the empires at the end of the war is something which all have realized is a possible implication of this war from 1914 itself. Change is there, but change now is going to be in a much more radical form and a revolutionary form. Now, there are some who argue that World War II is simply a continuation of World War I. What are your thoughts on that subject? I've never bought that argument. I don't think I've ever bought it. I certainly don't buy it now. The aspiration that this is a war to end all wars, which is an aspiration expressed by socialists, particularly in France in 1914, and one, of course, reflected by Woodrow Wilson after the US entry, that's one genuinely felt across Europe in 1919. But I think if you look at the situation across the world from the perspective of 1924, let's say, with the Treaty of Lausanne, and with people returning from the war, I think there must then have been a sense of optimism and that whatever has happened in relation to the war and the experience of the war can begin to be put behind societies as they look forward. So I don't think you can jump from 1919 to 1939 or 1941. There's too much in between. You've written a lot of books and a lot of articles about World War I. And you've done a lot of research. And what are some of the key issues about this global catharsis that remain unknown, unknowable, and unresolved? There are areas where I think research will still be done, which will leave us much better informed. In the Russian case, Russia's been neglected because at least up until the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russian history began in 1917. And so the First World War was always looked at as the precursor to the revolution. And the same point in a slightly different way applies to the Ottoman Empire. But it has remained a story too dominated in some ways by the fact that the easily accessible source material is in languages other than Turkish. In terms of what will remain unknown, one is on hunger in the First World War. But what I think we will always struggle to identify is how much hunger across Europe in the First World War was a direct product of the war effort. And how far hunger was a product of maladministration, of the mobilization of peasant societies, of the withdrawal of animals from agriculture for use of the armed forces. In other words, how much is hunger an indirect consequence of the war rather than a direct consequence of military action? And this seems to be crucially important because one of the things that I thought would happen as a result of this centenary but hasn't is that we haven't the faintest idea what the total number of dead as a result of this war is. Most economic historians would say demographically, the impact of the war is pretty short term, and most societies have recovered fairly quickly in the 1920s. But it would still, to my mind, be the great project actually to answer that question. So there's a lot to be done. <laughs> Thank you. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, too. Sir Hugh Strawn is Professor of International Relations at the University of St. Andrews and Emeritus Fellow of All Souls College, University of Oxford, and an author of many books and papers. And that wraps up episode number 104, our World War I Centennial News New Year special, with some of our favorite segments of 2018, part two. So thank you to our 2018 production team, our amazing guests, and our most amazing audience. 
I'm Teo Mayer, your producer and host. Thank you for listening. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. For the past nearly five years, we've inspired a national conversation and awareness about World War I. We've brought the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators and to their classrooms. We've helped to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across our nation. And now, we'll be putting our focus and attention on one more key goal. With your help, we're going to build America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. Please see www.cc.org memorial for all the details. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as the Star Foundation for their support. The podcast and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn. You'll find World War I Centennial News in all the places you get your podcasts and even using your smart speaker by saying, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. The podcast Twitter handle is at the WW1 Podcast. The Commission's Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us and don't forget, keep the story of World War I alive in America by helping us build the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. Just text the letters WWI or WW1 to the phone number 91999. Thank you. And as a closing 2018 treat, we thought we'd end with a post-war big band rendition of Over There. So long.